John chapter 19 um, is going to be interesting. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope you had so much joy and you felt so great about the world and your family and your relationship with the Lord and turkey and pie and all of that because today we're really going to talk a lot about sin and humanity's propensity to it and the great evil that's in humanity's hearts. So <laughs> gear up, it's gonna be jolly. It's not Christmas yet. It's time to talk about sin because what we have basically is uh, we have a lot of problems in our world. We, we've talked about, last week we talked about truth, we talked about lies, we talked about deception. Um, and it's not just words, it's not just confusion that, that creates, but as we know, um, lies and deception, when they really begin to take root in someone's heart, can lead to all kinds of horrible atrocities, um, including stealing, killing, destroying, abuse, um, lots of different things that have caused a lot of pain in this world. And so the question for people who aren't Christians and for people who are Christians as well is, so why, why is there all this evil in the world? Why is there all this pain and one of the, the things people think is, is it because God is powerless? That actually God can't really do anything about it? I mean, that's one consideration. Another one would be, well, maybe God is mean. Maybe he is mean and doesn't, or doesn't care about all of those things. Maybe he's just kind of hands off, leave us to our own devices. That's another option. Um, but then another option to consider is maybe it's because mankind really does have evil inside their hearts. Um, that's not a fun thing to think about because that means you and I. But the Bible's pretty clear about that. And we're gonna get to see um, basically John the Apostle answering that very question as we read this story that he experienced in real life, in real time. Um, 2,000 years ago. And John was writing so that we would believe that Jesus is the creator God who created the world and came to rescue it from sin and death. He wrote his evangelistic letter about Jesus around 30 years after the other three gospels, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So he's writing with a completely different perspective. Those three books have already been in circulation. He's read them. He knows what they're about. So he's adding something to it. He doesn't necessarily use all the same stories. He uses some other stories and he uses his own um, version of those stories. John wants to make sure no one misses that Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time. Um, John's not playing around. He really believes that these stories about Jesus can change a person's life as well as change their destiny after your life runs out. He talks about being born again. He talks about drinking living water and he talks about resurrection life. Um, he's emphatic about those things. And we've seen in the book of John, Jesus um, rise to popularity to where at one point he basically had 5,000 men come out to him and say, hey, we're ready to do whatever you wanna do. Let's march on Jerusalem. Let's take out Herod, whatever you wanna do. And then from that point on, he kind of plateaued in popularity and then has quickly begun to decline in popularity. And then last week we left off with Pilate, who was the Roman authority in Jerusalem at that time, presenting to all of the Jews that used to want to make Jesus king, but now aren't so sure. And he's presenting to them Barabbas, the son of the father, 
um, a, a, a guy who was known um, to lead a rebellion and to, to, to do some damage to people and things. And then you've got Jesus who's claiming to be the son of the father, actually the son of God. And, and Pilate's presenting them to the people and the people are saying, we want Barabbas. We, we don't want Jesus. And so that's where we're at. We get to see the confusion and deception that has taken root in the human heart when they're face to face with their maker. They're saying, we don't want him. He's too true. He's too real. We want the counterfeit. And then in John chapter 19, it says this, then Pilate, he took Jesus and had him flogged. Basically had his back whipped and torn to shreds, hoping that he might confess something. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, hail, king of the Jews, as they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace and said, where do you come from? To Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do, do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have either power to free you or to crucify you? Then Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, and there they crucified him, and with, two, with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. 
This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. And near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And later, knowing that everything now had been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it in with spices and strips of linen. It was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So this is John's account, eyewitness account. He was there in person. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the one that actually witnessed the spear going into Jesus' side and blood and water flowing out. And he's telling us all these, de these details of this moment so that we would believe that Jesus really was the Messiah, the Son of God, the creator of the world and also the rescuer of the world. And he goes person by person. He begins to talk about the different people there. We know Judas, who had betrayed Jesus over to the Pharisees, who then took him before Pilate. And we now know Pilate has been wrestling with this in chapter, 19, in chapter 18 and 19. He's wrestling with the reality of who Jesus is and what to do with Jesus. And he's very conflicted. He can't find anything wrong with him. He's trying to set him free. And yet ultimately he decides to hand him over. 
to their wishes. And then you've got these soldiers who are putting crowns of thorns on Jesus and putting this robe on him and slapping him and mocking him, who whipped his back, tore it to shreds, trying to get him to confess something. And then there, as he's hanging on the cross, they're not really paying attention to what's going on, but instead they're just trying to figure out how to get his clothes. And then you've got Mary, Jesus' mom, and his aunt, and another Mary, and another Mary, a lot of Marys. (laughs) And John's there with them, and they're watching all of this take place. They're not hearing about it 2,000 years later. They're sitting there and they're watching Jesus as blood is dripping from his hands and his feet, knowing that his back is ripped to shreds and it's up on that tree. And the only way that he can take a breath is to actually pull himself up to get his chest high enough to take a breath because crucifixion was actually um, something that caused suffocation, asphyxiation is why people died. That's why they would break the legs so they couldn't push up anymore to take a breath. And Jesus' mom is standing there watching this happen to her son, who she knows is a lot more than just her son. Virgin birth. All the times talking with him. All the things that he's done. And she's watching and be crucified. And her heart's broken in many different ways. One, because her son's being killed, but two, because she really hoped that he would be able to save his people from the pain of sin and death. She really believed he might have been stronger than the wickedness of humanity. And she's watching the breath leave him And with one of those painful breaths, he actually speaks out words and says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mom. As he tries to ask John if if he would take care of her, and John does that. And then you have these other couple of characters. After Jesus is now dead, he's breathed his last, he said it is finished. You have Joseph of Arimathea who risks a lot, who's a disciple yet very afraid, and he goes and asks Pilate if he can take care of the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus finds out about this and he joins in because he also wants to take care of the body of Jesus as he's been watching Jesus, as he's been trying to figure out who Jesus is. And they go and they put Jesus' body in a tomb. They honor Jesus' body. They care for it in a secretive way. And when I think about what John is trying to get across here in this chapter, I mean, I think about these different people he's introduced. I mean, we see Judas, who actually knew the truth about Jesus. If anybody knew the truth about Jesus, it would be Judas. He was there with him for three years, seeing all the things that Jesus did and hearing all the things that Jesus said. And yet Judas, having a front row seat to the creator of the universe, 
knew the truth, but loved money more. He knew the truth. He was face to face with the truth, but there was something in his heart that caused him to be willing to betray Jesus over to the Jews who he knew wanted to kill him. Even though he knew the truth, he suppressed the truth because he wanted something else more than the truth. And then you have Pilate. Pilate basically is saying, I find no fault in this person. The interactions with Pilate, based on what John is telling us, have got Pilate kind of going, I don't know if I want to mess with this guy. And we know from another of the Gospels that Pilate's wife actually said, have nothing to do with this man. Don't mess around. I just had a dream. And there's all this stuff coming to Pilate to where he now knows the truth about who this person is, or at least knows there is a lot more going on than what he understands, and yet he loved his position more. The sin in his heart caused him to suppress the truth that could have set him free. And ultimately he surrendered and said, I don't really wanna risk my position. And he handed Jesus over. And then the soldiers, their response when they're face to face with truth is they just ignored it and just cared about themselves. And then we have these two at the end who had been compelled to believe that Jesus was the truth. One became a disciple, but secretly. And though they were believing in Jesus, they continued to kind of stand back and be afraid. And so the story in the scriptures, the story with evidence in, in human history is that the God of the universe, the maker and creator of everything, as John said in the very beginning, he came into the world and the world did not receive him. The sin in the hearts of humanity was so grotesque, so evil, so despicable, so deceived that we when face to face with the God, the maker and lover of our souls, we shouted, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want anything to do with him. And whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, this is what is still alive in each one of us. The reason that there is all of the pain in the world is because evil has entered into the heart of mankind. And whether the evil shows up as something super grotesque as a crucifixion or just kind of loving your position a little bit more than the truth or loving money more than the truth, it's hard for us to weigh out and say one's bad, one's not as bad, but it's all sin and it all leads to the same things. In the Bible, there's four different words um, in Hebrew for, for sin, um, for, for basically doing wrong. Kata is missing the mark. It's basically, this is what you were supposed to do, and then you ended up going that way, <laughs> or falling short. 
Pasha is transgression, which is a breaking of trust. And Avon is iniquity, which is basically just crookedness. It's just, instead of going in a straight line, you're going in a crooked line, and you're calling the crooked straight. Sin is missing the mark, and worse, um, one of the things I was doing the other day, I, got, I just got this pellet gun, and, uh, and so we've been shooting this pellet gun at these cans, and, and, and it's a really powerful pellet gun, and, uh, and, and we were shooting at these cans, and none of us are that good at it. It's me and like my, my, my kids and my nephews and stuff. And so we're shooting at these cans. We got these cans all lined up, and uh, we're trying to make sure the sight is right. So, you know, if, you, if the sight's not right, you can't really shoot straight. And so this, this sight's lined up pretty good, and we're, we're still not very good at hitting the cans. But even if we were good at hitting the cans, then, then with the sight, we could aim that sight up, and we could hit the can every time. That would, that would be not missing the mark. Um, that's righteousness. But, but what sin is, basically, there's, there's different layers to this um, in, the word, in the word in Hebrew. It's not only just missing the mark to where like, your aim is off, like you are, you are missing the mark because you're aiming the wrong way, but, but, but it also has this idea of um, your sight is off. So, so even if you tried, even if you and yourself tried to aim it the right way, your sight is off, so you still wouldn't be able to hit it. So it's this next layer, right? So, so I'm off, my sight is off. This is the condition of the human heart apart from Jesus. I'm off, the sight is off, but then it gets even more, even worse. Because what, what happens is when I'm off long enough, then I start to blame the sight. And then if the sight's off long enough, then what happens is I just start to adjust and I start, and this is gonna get a little sad here, but it didn't actually happen, but it's just it's, it's if this did happen. So we have these little goats now, these little, little pygmy goats. They're awesome. We have two of them. And, and we were shooting these cans, and then, and then all of a sudden these goats came around the backside of where we were shooting. And, uh, and so we stopped shooting because we're not totally horrible. We've got Jesus, you know? <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> But, but what, the way the Bible tries to help us understand sin is it's I'm off, my sight is off, and then all of a sudden I start to hit other things and saying that that is really what I'm supposed to hit. That is the true mark of what I'm going after, as if shooting the goat is what you were supposed to do. And so you see there's these different layers of, of sin. There's different you know, depths of depravity that are, that are inside all of us. This is, this is what it is like apart from Christ, whether you acknowledge it or not. And you might say, well, I, I'm not that bad. That's, that's fine. Maybe you're holding all of that into some sort of manageable to where it doesn't look that bad. But, but we know that that sin is rampant in our society. And what the Bible says, it's a diagnosis of, our, of the human heart. That when Adam sinned and then we're born of the seed of Adam, we're born with our hearts being off. We, 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 we can't even get the aim right. And we actually have our sights off. So even if we did one time get our aim right, we would still miss. But we've also twisted things to now say, whatever I hit, I will now justify as the thing that I was supposed to hit. And it's a great deception. Not only is that the reality of what's going on inside our own bodies, 
Missing the mark because we're off. Missing the mark because our sights are off. Missing the mark because we start to justify whatever we do hit as the right thing. But our world is full of deceptive ideas that love to play to our disordered desires and then they're normalized and celebrated in a sinful society. So it's not just a problem from within, but our whole society is saturated in this same deception. Where the devil and the world and the flesh, there's all these deceptive ideas being thrown around. And these deceptive ideas sound good to our disordered desires. And then instead of those things being checked by our society, instead they're celebrated and encouraged, saying, yeah, you should do that. You deserve that. Yeah, that won't be a bad thing. Everybody's doing it. And the deception gets a whole nother level deep and a whole nother level disgusting. This guy, Ray Pritchard, he says this, first, sin deceives us by promising what it can never deliver. Second, sin deceives us by convincing us what happens to others will never happen to us. And third, sin deceives us by creating in us a desire for that which we know can only hurt us. We think that we're getting away with little sins all the time, but what we're not realizing is those little sins are actually changing our heart a little each time a little each time. And again, how do I know this? Not just because the Bible says so. Because you can look at the sociological ramifications and statistics in our society. There is something deeply, deeply wrong. No one gets married and says, ah, I'm probably gonna get divorced. But little by little, by little by little, that becomes the only way out. No one, as a little kid, wakes up and says, I'm excited about killing someone someday. But little by little, by little by little, they find themselves murdering someone. No one grows up and says, I'm gonna abuse my children someday. But little by little, by little by little, the deception takes root the deception grows, and next thing we know, we have humanity shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, to their only real hope. We have a very serious problem. And to say that sin is not a big deal, to say that sin, that sin is not rampant in our world, to just kind of minimize it, is to minimize the cross, but it's also to minimize the problem. And so, first of all, how do we escape the deception of sin? I mean, the Bible says that the devil shows up as an angel of light. How, how are you supposed to know it's the devil when it's an angel of light? There's pleasure in sin, the Bible says. The Bible's not foolish about it. There is pleasure in sin. How is it supposed to be wrong when there's pleasure in it? But that pleasure, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but then comes destruction. It's very deceptive. It's very challenging. So how can we escape deception and sin? First of all, the cross. <laughs> Jesus died on the cross to set us free from sin. His death 
on the cross breaks the power of sin. It gives us the chance of being able to get free from the bondage of sin. His blood can wash us and cleanse us. The second thing, Jesus died on the cross so we can be forgiven of our sin. So even though sometimes we get, we get the power of sin broken over us as believers who receive the cross, we still sometimes fall into the same deceptions, but then Jesus gives us forgiveness. So the cross really is the answer. The cross is the most important thing. If you have not really come to terms with the cross, if you have not received the work that Jesus has done for you on the cross, you are still in bondage to sin, you are not free from it, and your sins are not forgiven. But when you say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin, I need you as my savior, you are now free from the power of sin over your life, and you are now forgiven for every sin that you have done, you are doing, or you will do. That's what the cross can do. That's what the cross is all about. That's why the cross is such good news, because Jesus didn't stay in that tomb. He rose again, and he wants to give us new life. But then as we're walking in this newness from the cross, as we've stepped from death to life, if we've stepped from darkness to light because of receiving what Jesus did on the cross, there's four things that I just wanna bring up real quick as we close that will help us with our battle with deception, with our battle with sin. First of all, the first thing that we can do is we can rest assured. I love what's, what we sang today, but I'll rest in the promises of God. Matthew 24, 24 says this, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so much so that if it were possible, they would deceive even the elect. So here what, what Jesus is saying is there is going to be so much deception, so much powerful deception that will, get, that will rise in the world. False Christs, false prophets, that will come, that they're gonna be very deceptive, but they will not be able to deceive the elect. And who are the elect? The elect are those who have received what Jesus did on the cross and have been filled with his spirit as they're going forward in life. So there's a promise that Jesus is like, you're not alone in this, I'm gonna hold you. I'm gonna make sure that you will not be deceived. I'm gonna be whispering in your ear. I'm gonna be showing the deception for what it was. I'm gonna be guiding you if you'll receive me. The second thing we can do is we can remain in the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2 says this, the coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan who uses all power, signs, and lying wonders and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. So here he says we need to love the truth. We need to believe the truth. And as Jesus said in John 15, we need to remain in the truth. How do you do that? You just spend every day taking in the word of God, both in silence as you listen to what his voice might be speaking to you, but also in the scriptures that have been given to us. And you just allow that stuff to wash over you, wash over your mind, cleanse you, be stronger than the voices outside. 
We remain in the truth. The third thing, we can encourage one another. This was interesting that this is important in our dealing with deception. Absolutely, Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We gotta encourage one another. We gotta get into each other's lives. So that when one of us starts to be like, oh, swerving off, it's like, what are you doing over there, man? Come back over here. Why are you shooting at those goats? Come on, man. Stop shooting at the goats. It's cans. We're going for the cans. You know, hey, let me adjust your sight a little bit. It looks like you're shooting off a little bit. I mean, it's all of this stuff. And that, that's what, I mean, that's what church is supposed to be. That's what life groups, this time where it's like, take advantage of this opportunity. That's what friendships are. I mean, you've got to reach out. Some of you are like, well, it's hard. It's, I was, who cares? Get over the obstacles. Press in, press through. If they're being a jerk, tell me. I'll go yell at them. We've got to get into each other's lives especially as our world even right now is so much more distance. It is harder, yes, I understand that, but it's, it's all the more important. Otherwise, we're gonna find ourselves, and this is what's so creepy, you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Your heart will be hardened little by little until all of a sudden you don't even realize what you're doing. You don't even realize what you're doing. That's what's so dangerous about sin. And then the fourth thing, we need to rejoice when we feel conviction. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, yes. Because conviction is a sign that the Spirit lives inside you. That the filtering has begun, as we talked about a few weeks ago. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9, Paul says, and now I rejoice, not because you were made sorrowful, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you felt the sorrow that God has intended, and so we're not harmed in, a, in any way by us. So it's, it's kind of fostering that sensitivity. It's being so in tune with, oh Lord, that's not right. Something's not right in what they're saying. Something's not right in what I'm saying. Something's not right about this place that I'm in. And there's this sensitivity that is, that is fostered. And you can rejoice whenever that happens. Instead of hating that, instead of fighting against that, rejoice when you feel that, that conviction and, and go with it. Respond to it. Be quick to respond to it. Pilate was getting that conviction. He was having that thing, something's not right about all this, something's not right about this, but at the end of the day he said, oh well. And he handed Jesus over to be crucified. And for us, as we continue to navigate a crazy time, I really want us to be people that are aware of the dangers and the deception of sin. Don't think you're above it. Don't think you're, you're past it. But then also be so aware of the power of the cross that it can actually set us free. We no longer in bondage. That's what happens is eventually as you continue to go in sin, you become in bondage to it. It owns you, it's on your back. And what Jesus did on the cross was he allowed his blood to flow and, and so he breaks the power of sin over us so that we can actually go a different way. But then he also gives us the forgiveness that we need to wash us clean as we make mistakes going forward.